1: Down a long and dangerous trail Chose to serve your country And we know you served us well But
2: now you're back and it's our duty To keep you safe and warm Shake your hand and welcome you back home With open arms We're America, your family a land of liberty we're thankful for your sacrifice, you fight to keep us free. We are America, and we truly do believe. You're the backbone of our nation, thanks to you we living. been said that we are but one generation away from forgetting our history. Welcome to American Heroes Network, where we serve our American tradition, with Gary Ray, along with his co-host, Linda Crater, and other prestigious co-hosts. In our program, you will hear firsthand the personal accounts of heroes whose unselfish actions have contributed to the traditions and values that represent the soul of America. You'll also hear from our partners and affiliations presenting news events and ways that our veterans and their families can rebuild their lives. Now, here is Gary Ray with his co-host, Linda Crater, and other prestigious co-hosts.
3: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the American Heroes Network. Today is October 15, 2013. I'm Gary Ray, along with my co-host, Linda Crater, President and CEO for VeteranCareGiver.com. Good morning, Linda. How are you?
4: Good morning, Gary. I'm just fine this morning. Thank you.
3: Great. Today's show is is actually about PTSD, moral injury, and subtitled, I Can Never Be Forgiven. But before we get to our guests, we're going to take just a couple of minutes to provide everyone with a live veteran truck update. Today's update is brought to you by First Class Merchant Services and Brave Marketing Concepts. Be sure to click on their logo on our sponsor page and see how they're supporting our veterans. Veteran Truck is about two veterans, Anthony and Tom, that are walking 2,700 miles from Milwaukee to L.A. for PTSD and veteran suicide awareness. Also, to more or less give recognition to Dry Hooch, Uh, it's dryhooch.org, and it's a coffee shop for our veterans for peer-to-peer atmosphere in there. Uh, Good morning, Tom. How are you?
5: Good, good. How are you?
3: Good. Is this Tom or is that Anthony? This is Tom. Okay, Tom. It's been 46 days since you left Milwaukee. How are you feeling? How's the lake uh, we're doing?
5: doing? We're doing pretty good. It's getting a little uh, cold out, though. So.
3: <laughs> cold, huh? You're in Nebraska. Yeah. Uh,
5: mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, wow. we, uh We got into uh, Nebraska and actually uh, went through Omaha and uh, met up with my old uh, Army roommate, um, so that was pretty cool, and then Anthony's uh, executive officer, XO who went with them on both deployments, uh, came out and walked with us and uh, got us a hotel room. So that was pretty cool. Wow!
3: And I heard last Thursday the film crew came back, right?
5: Yeah, they've been they've been with us. We uh, woke up, uh, got out of our tents with uh, cameras in our face again. So <laughs> he's back <laughs> at f- it.
3: Are they filming you now? <laughs>
5: uh, not right now. No.
3: Alright, next, next week we have to have them filming you for sure. Okay, we'll do
5: that. Alright, what's the next big town you're coming up to? Um, actually, we are in uh, halfway, about halfway through Lincoln right now, so um, we will be heading towards York, uh, Nebraska.
3: Alright, alright. And I guess the uh, walk's getting a little bit easier?
5: Yeah, yeah, but yeah, actually the cooler weather helps out a lot, so... Um, We've had only a few days where, where it's rained, so we've been lucky. And you're taking off today? Yep, we're taking today off, and we'll be back at it tomorrow. All right, all right. Any incidents on the way? Uh, nothing, nothing too crazy yet, so <laughs> we're thankful
3: all right. for that. All right. Well, everyone, let's wish Anthony and Tom good luck, because, again, give them your support. Here's how, here's how you can do that. Just pick up your cell phone. And text the word DONATE to 80464, 100% of your donation will go right to dryhooch.org. Good luck, Tom. Tell Thank Anthony good much. luck also, okay? We'll be we'll providing a live updates uh, of, our, of their adventures every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the AmericanHeroesNetwork.com. We have quite a show for you today, Linda. Why don't you introduce our guests?
4: I'd be delighted to. Uh, First guest is Dr. Craig Bryan, who is a 2009 Iraq War veteran who served as the director of the TBI, the Traumatic Brain Injury Clinic and Theater. After his deployment, he separated from the Air Force and began a journey of extensive study and clinical research on PTSD, mental health, and suicide prevention in combat veterans of all eras. Today he's actively involved in veterans research at the University of Utah, heading up the Department of Veterans Studies. Welcome, Craig.
6: Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning.
4: Our second guest is Jim Holbrook, who is a Vietnam veteran who went on to learn his earn his law degree and who now teaches law at the University of Utah where he met Dr. Bryan. Together, both Craig and Jim will discuss the very challenging topic of moral injury and how it relates to our current studies of PTSD, mental health, and suicide prevention among U.S. combat veterans. A warm welcome to you also, Jim. Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Craig, why don't we begin with you today so that we can understand the term and the concept of moral injury. Would you please explain that to our listeners, what it means, and perhaps share some examples?
6: Certainly so uh, so moral injury is uh, a concept that has been around for as long as there had been you know war and combat and battle, but the term itself, moral injury, is relatively new um, and basically, what moral injury is is a psychological injury that occurs. Um, when somebody witnesses or engages in actions or makes decisions that violate their sense of right versus wrong. Mm -hmm. And this is very common amongst uh, military personnel and combat veterans because some of the events that can violate their sense of right versus wrong, of course, might be killing others, whether combatants or non-combatants, accidentally, um, we are also starting to uh, potentially see that maybe moral injury occurs amongst victims of sexual assault, um, or uh, even we're seeing in populations and groups such as unmanned aerial vehicles, um, where their their mission and their job is to uh, eliminate the enemy or to kill individuals who are associated with terrorist cells or with enemy combatants, and this can cause a great deal of emotional and psychological distress as a result.
4: You know, it's interesting that you bring up the drones because I think recently it's been in the news that those who are many, many miles away operating these vehicles to indeed eliminate terrorists are showing um, high degrees of mental illness and, and real distress over, from their work, do you have, what are some of the indications that someone can, who do do they go to talk to, I guess, is where I'm going with this, because moral injury seems to be a factor of war itself.
6: Right. Yeah, so, uh, uh, I mean, the the individuals that they could go talk to are the same individuals that they might talk to with other types of psychological injuries, so, mental health professionals. Some prefer to go uh, speak with religious leaders. Um, and particularly when we think of the notion of moral injury, uh, we see associated with these types of injuries a great deal of guilt uh, and shame. So second-guessing their decisions or feeling that somehow they are defective, that there's something wrong from with them. Um, in my experience, treating combat veterans, a lot of them, uh, make statements such as I can never be forgiven for what i 've done i 've become a monster, who have I become, etc and so we use many of the same psychological treatments that we would for other sort of more classic cases of post traumatic stress disorder where someone fears that they are going to die and then they experience this fear response you know for a very long time afterwards. Um, but instead of focusing on fear, oftentimes we're focusing on this sort of this self-consciousness of there's something wrong with me, or maybe I should have done something differently. Um, it's it's very interesting because we've seen several different types or dimensions of moral injury, um, one of which is the sense of being betrayed by others, and it's my, this betrayal can be You know, in in today's military, it's held by Iraqi police, Afghan National Army, where your allies might then turn on you unexpectedly. Uh, Mm. But we also see another dimension called transgressions by others, where you see other people doing things such as killing, being harmed, abuse, etc. And then a third type of moral injury that we started to identify is what we call transgressions by the self, which is, I have done something that does not sit well with me morally. Uh, Oftentimes this seems to be associated with the act of killing within combat.
4: You know, Craig, the things you're talking about, guilt and shame, are often things that stop people from talking. Is this a problem that you have to break through before someone can seek treatment? Do they have to be able to express what they're feeling in order to gain some help?
6: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Shame is a very important barrier to care, and in in fact, you know, we talk a lot about the stigma of mental health among service members and veterans, and a big part of that stigma is this shame, this sense of there's something wrong with me and I don't want to admit to that. And if I were to go talk with a mental health professional, then that would be, in essence, admitting to um, this embarrassing you know, aspect of who I am. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing and that we've been advocating for uh, has actually focused on mental health professionals and to help the the counselors, psychiatrists, um, and anyone else providing mental health treatment to service members of veterans understand this process of shame. And in essence, instead of asking the service member to abandon their values and our ideals in order to come meet with us as mental health professionals, what can we do as the professionals to adapt how we do our work to meet service members and veterans on their terms, you know, on a comfortable, familiar ground where they don't have to feel as ashamed of what they have done and of talking to mental health professionals.
3: Oh, Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to take a real short break, okay? My name's Gary Ray, along with my co-host Linda and our guest, Dr. Craig Bryan and Jim Hallbrook. You're listening to the American Heroes Network, powered by Voice America on the Variety Channel, and we'll be right back.
0: what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter you can find us at voiceamericatrn
2: are you ready for another meeting do you leave wondering if you've made any progress or was it just another organizational reorganization Are you looking for a way to change that and make progress? Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel every week for educational leadership. What else is possible? With hosts Mary Maduna and Margaret Ruff. If you're ready to energize your leadership and create new possibilities, join us for a chance to look through a different lens and gain a new perspective every Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
5: On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have a nationally known guest that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time here on voiceamerica.com.
2: That's AmericanHeroesNetwork at gmail dot com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back. We're here with Doctor Craig
3: Bryan and Jim Hallberg. Uh, Jim, why don't you tell us a little bit about the combat experience in Nam? Um,
1: yeah. In nineteen sixty eight, I was um, twenty four years old. I had two degrees in philosophy. I was accepted into a PhD program in philosophy at Yale. And instead of starting that, I enlisted in the Army, um, started OCS, um, didn't like that, um, told them I was going to drop out. Uh, The Army said, if you do, uh, we'll send you to Vietnam, and I did, and they did. Mm -hmm. And in January of 1969, I was in Vietnam, in the Delta, um, in an artillery unit with the 9th Infantry Division, and my MOS was... uh, Fire direction specialist calculating the firing directions for 155 millimeter howitzer battery. And, um, you know, in terms of one of the things that um, Craig and Linda talked about in terms of drones today, this, this is really, you know, killing at a distance. Um, and in earlier combat, it was this happened with indirect fire, um, mortar and artillery fire, for example. And so um, my role was to help kill other people at a distance, and I was really good at my job and took pride in how good I was, um, and really didn't think about um, the act of killing while I was in theater. Um, it was a body count war, and at the end of every fire mission, if we um, killed somebody by artillery, we marked that down uh, with a grease, grease pencil on a sheet of acetate uh, paper and um, radioed that up uh, through the chain of command. Um, and it was only after that I got back that um, I began to experience, you know, what we now regard as the classic symptoms of PTSD, um, nightmares, you know, startling reaction, hypervigilance, um too much drinking to go to sleep at night, um, mm-hmm. interpersonal problems, those and communication problems, all those kinds of things. Um, I realized I was really angry, but the anger, anger was very diffuse, um, didn't know who to be angry at, and I was obsessed with um, reading war novels and watching war movies, and uh, found myself surprisingly reading a lot of books about the Holocaust. Um, And it wasn't until, um, 25 years later when I began to put some thoughts on paper that I realized that, uh, what I was really struggling with was guilt. And as, uh, Craig mentioned, this is, you know, guilt is a white hot emotion. You know, that it's one of those things you almost dare not touch. And it took me 25 years to get to the point where I could admit my own guilt, um, what compounds it is, um, I think Vietnam was an unnecessary war. And so um, we put people we put soldiers in a situation where we train them and expect them and order them to kill. And if the war is unnecessary, um, soldiers have to live with the consequence of that of their own killing of others. Um, long after the war is over, uh, so for me, finally being able to write about this um, enabled me to recognize that um, I had incurred what you know the Buddhists would call a, a huge karmic debt um, for killing other people, and it was my job to see if I could do something to address that. Um, and about that time, I became interested in conflict resolution, and um, not much long after that, started to teach um, mediation at the law school as an adjunct professor, started doing mediation, um, and then about um, 11 years ago, became a full-time faculty member, um, I'd been involved in teaching mediation in India, Um, I did a rule of law program for Afghan prosecutors, I spent three months in Iraq managing a law school program, providing legal um, services to the government of Iraq, Uh, went back to India and did some more teaching, Um, and finally in the last year or so recognized that, um, as the title of this talk is, um, I can't be forgiven. There isn't any way to make up for what happened um, in 1969 in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've made it kind of my purpose at this stage in my life as a 69-year-old veteran to um, work with the young veterans of um, the Iraq and Afghan wars um, to try to help them um, because we've put them in a situation where um, we have... Uh, inflicted psychological injury on them. And I want to make sure that uh, when they come back, you know, they have all the resources and help that they they can possibly get. Because I didn't get that when I got back. And the motto of the Vietnam Veterans Association is never shall um, one generation of American mm-hmm. veterans abandon another. And um, I think that that is... Um, I think Vietnam veterans today should be called to help um, our young brothers and sisters who are coming back from theater um, and who are facing these problems that I faced um, without any help. All right. <clears throat> Jim, did you get the same uh, feeling when
3: you came back and they would tell you not to wear your uniform? Um, I didn't
1: experience that kind of... Um, rejection and, you know, I've heard stories of people being spit upon and, you know, mm-hmm. so on. Um, my kind of experience was more subtle than that. Um, I think that there were about 10 Vietnam veterans in my law school class, but we never talked to one another and we never talked about our combat experience and no one mm-hmm. ever talked about it, um, you know, none of our press professors and so on so we were we were invisible um, and basically forgotten and I think in some ways that's more difficult to deal with than you know being spit upon or yelled at
6: mm-hmm.
1: it is why
3: the experiences that uh that you go through are really tough and and you wrote a book on it, so that was constantly on your mind
1: well uh, I think that um Writing is a way in which to regain um, one's story, and mm-hmm. which is a way to regain one's life. Um, and so, writing about the war was very important to me. And I've encouraged, you know, young veterans here at the law school to write about their experience, and it's been amazing, you know, things that they've written. And they, sometimes they write things that they've never told their spouse about. For example, um, mm-hmm. one question I have for Craig is: um, but I've always wondered what are the risks of having asking some vet, combat veteran to write about their experiences. You know, is it possible that they could incur harm if they're not um, in some kind of uh, therapy?
6: Yeah, but so. Um, uh, so the the instant is that it sort of depends on how the writing is accomplished, and there there actually is a, a pretty good amount of um, scientific research that suggests that writing about stressful life experiences is associated with improved health. Um, and we have experimented um, within our lab on writing experiences amongst uh, combat veterans. And what we find is that it's helpful for some but not helpful for others. And I think the reason why it does not always work is because some individuals write about their experience but never really fully engage in the memory. So they kind of write about, you know, the surface experiences but not the feelings or um, the thoughts about themselves and the implications and ramifications for who they are as a person and their life as a whole. And what we know is that exposure to those emotions and the beliefs about oneself, others in the world, are what is most critical to recovery. And so when we do writing types of interventions or experiences, it's really important that the person kind of get to that core, talk about whether it's the fear, the guilt, or shame, and then also write out those things that they've been saying to themselves. Like I mentioned before, I am no good, it is my fault, etc. Because once they kind of connect with those underlying thoughts and feelings, that's when they can start to make some changes and understand their experience in a new way.
1: Let me um, read one thing that I wrote. Um, It's about um, um, an engagement in Vietnam in March of 1969, um, and we were firing at some sampans at a terrain feature called uh, the Wagon Wheel. In the intersection of five canals in the Mekong Delta, seven people and three sampans disappeared under artillery fire. I was expert at directing high-explosive projectiles to scream from the sky and burst among the living. 8,000 meters and 30 seconds away, I plotted their execution on a sheet of plywood. Years later, I still wonder if we have souls, and if those souls survive our bodies, and if those souls can communicate and embrace and cry and forgive.
4: Wow. This is a very challenging topic because it is bringing up very deep emotions, and I agree with Craig that writing can really accomplish a lot. And being exposed to your emotions is has been helpful to many of the young vets that I have worked with when the VA is working with them. But it has also been somewhat volatile with some because, as you say, some write on the surface. But when you write as deeply as Jim just read, unless you are in touch with someone you can lean on as a therapist or someone who you trust fully to hold you up and support you, it can also be very much a a walking to the edge experience. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think... For myself, it was a point where I had really no option but to write about it, um, mm-hmm. and it was a re-experiencing of um, all of these white-hot emotions. Um, and but it was it was very cathartic, and it. I hoped at some point that this would be relevant to um, to yeah. others, and um, and one of the things that I've realized is that. To have one of these you know, significant traumas occur um, is not just a deficit. Um, it can also become an asset. And when I teach mediators um, at the end of my um, lessons, I tell them about my experience in Vietnam and about this karmic journey that I have and how I've dedicated my life to conflict resolution. And I have them run a thought experiment, and the thought experiment is I suspect that each one of you have either um, had a significant trauma or you've witnessed it, and that your experience of trauma, either your personal experience or your indirect experience, is a reason why you are here um, wanting to do mediation, and it's amazing how quiet the room gets and Several people start crying, you know, silently to themselves. And then I say, you know, this, your trauma, is a huge asset because when you work with other people who have experienced trauma, they will know that you have been there too. And this is a source of credibility and connection and relevance to them. And they will trust you. Um, and rely on you in a way that they would never um, trust or rely on somebody who hadn't experienced a similar trauma
6: all
1: right. so I do think it is even though it's a terrible life experience it can be, become a great asset in working with other people
3: alright if everybody can hold that thought we're going to take a short break but before we do I want to say thanks for all the comments we hear about our unique site and mobile site It's called a WordPress responsive site, and there's only a handful of these sites out there. Go to the website on the computer, and at the same time, go to the site on on your cell phone, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And while you're there, be sure to join the Silent Hero support team and become part of the support team for as little as $26 per year. That's 50 cents a week. I'm Gary Ray, along with Linda and our guests Craig and Jim. You're listening to the American Heroes Network, powered by Voice America on the Variety Channel, and we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports,
2: health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
7: Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein.
2: How do you know if you're living with an addict? If you think you know all the recognizable signs, you probably don't. If you're listening to and reading from the so-called experts, you probably don't. You need to hear from a parent, just like yourself, who has been there and can tell you what it's like firsthand. Please listen to Afflicted by Addiction with Bradley DeHaven. Our program is heard every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It just might save your life or the life of someone you love. at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Craig Bryan and Jim Hallbrook.
3: Uh, Linda, you had a question.
4: Yes, Craig, after hearing Jim speak of moral injury and his really intense experience, can you talk about the relationship with other mental health issues, including PTSD? Is this a unique type of injury? Is it part of PTSD or just a different kind of trauma? Maybe you could Break that down for us a little bit to further explain it.
6: Yeah, well, that's uh, that's a great question, and that's actually a major part of what we're working on, not only here at the University of Utah, but other colleagues across the country are really looking at this issue. Um, One of the things that, or one of the the primary questions is, is this a subtype of post-traumatic stress disorder Is it a completely different type of psychological injury, or is it sort of like they're two separate but overlapping injuries? Uh, Now, if you think of PTSD, sort of the traditional model of PTSD, is that a person experiences or witnesses a life-threatening event or an event in which severe physical harm uh, or damage is likely to occur. And so they experience fear as a result. And the recovery process from this fear-inducing situation becomes dull. And so, but what we see with moral injury oftentimes is not a fear-based response, but more of a guilt or a shame-based emotional response. Now guilt and shame is often experienced by trauma victims, but not always, and likewise we have individuals who, uh, for instance, when we see some military personnel who have witnessed atrocities, um, so they were not in danger of their lives, you know, being or being killed or injured themselves, but they have seen severe human suffering. They've had to pick up human remains. They've had to clean, you know, uh, blood or other body parts off of themselves, off of equipment. Um, and so this disrupts their sort of beliefs about how the world is supposed to work, even though at the moment they were not afraid of life versus death. And so that's what's causing us to look at this as potentially a different type of injury. And some other researchers of the past few years have interestingly found that when you study combat veterans in particular, they will meet criteria for PTSD, even though... They were not in a life-threatening situation, but were exposed to these other forms of severe human suffering or atrocity. And so what has happened is over the past year, the diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder have actually been updated to reflect some of these changes. And now guilt and shame are, are now included as explicit <clears throat> symptoms of PTSD, and we also no longer require that someone be in a life-threatening situation in which they experience fear. And so our understanding of this concept of moral injury is being incorporated into sort of a newer conceptualization or understanding of trauma response. So we're, we're still doing more research. Like I said, it's only been within the past decade or so that this notion of this term, moral injury, has kind of emerged, and we're kind of in the early stages where we're trying to figure out how do we measure it, how do we know uh, how it relates to other mental health conditions, and how is it different.
4: You know, Craig, that brings up a thought to me. Uh, does this also affect the leadership who may order troops to go into such a situation? Does it, does it start at the top? Does it affect the entire spectrum of those who experience these events?
6: Absolutely. And I I think that is one of the strengths of this new understanding of psychological injury is that, you know, I've I've worked with commanders and senior enlisted who made the call where then a bad thing happened, people died, people got severely injured, etc. And that leader who, you know, was located miles away at the base um, or who was not directly involved in the event itself experienced guilt and shame and many other symptoms that we would traditionally associate with PTSD. And the problem is that in the past we would say, well, you weren't in that life-threatening situation, so it's not possible for you to have PTSD. There must be something else going on. Now what we're starting to understand is, well... Maybe it's not PTSD as we have traditionally thought about it. There's still a psychological injury that is causing significant distress because of the way that this detention is affected that leader's sense of self and sense of the world.
1: Let me uh, jump in here. It's it's not just um, military commanders. I also think that... um, Our country's civilian leadership that, you know, determines to, you know, go to war and determines to put, you know, our young warriors in harm's way, um, you know, is a a cause of betrayal. Um, And um, when I finally had enough courage to go back um, to D.C. and go to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in November of '96. Um, that experience, that um, this was you know, profoundly uh, moving as opposed to f- fearsome, um, caused me to write something about this notion that you know we've been betrayed by our country. Um, and, oh, let me read this: "You sacrificed our lives on an altar of hubris. Dismantle the altar and scatter its stones. Lord, hear our prayer." Embrace those in agony who suffer and die. Comfort their loved ones, heal all the wounded. Lord, hear our prayer. You are our salvation. Grant us peace. Remember our sacrifice and give us meaning. Lord, hear our prayer.
3: Mm-hmm. And Craig, where is there some place uh, our listeners can go to to find out more information?
6: Uh, Yeah, certainly. So there is uh, another sort of team that's doing a lot of work on moral injury and PTSD as a whole um, is the National Center for PTSD, um, which is a part of the VA. um, And they have a website with all sorts of information about PTSD, moral injury, and other information that's relevant to veterans um, and families of veterans as well.
3: All right.
1: And Jim, where can they find out more information about your book? Well, um, it's, it's been published, but it's in a, a, a legal journal that publishes um, lawyers' creative writing. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll send some things for you to put up on your website. Great.
3: That'd be one way. That'd be fantastic.
4: All right. I am. I'm. I'm very interested by the the uh, trip back to Vietnam. Um, I have family members who have no desire to return, will not go to the wall, um, and and so there are often two, by, you know, very polar opposite reactions. It appears as though this was a catharsis for you, Jim, to go back to write, and to visit the wall, and. I, I just wish that we could find a way to provide peace to those to whom avoidance is a protective mechanism and works for them. So there's no right way, but it, it's hard to find peace listening to what you're talking about.
1: Um, I, think, you know, I think we are afraid to confront these underlying emotions that feel... Um, overwhelming, and my experience has been that if we do confront them, not only are they not overwhelming, but they are um, humbling and um, become a a source of healing, and Mm -hmm. um, when I began to write about um, the war 25 years afterwards... I recognized that I had been afraid to go to the wall and I had, and that I really needed to go back to Vietnam. And so, less than a year after I wrote that, I went to um, the memorial and found it um, just an incredibly moving experience. Um, And then I had an opportunity a year after that to go back to Vietnam and that experience um, enabled me to recognize that the the war was over, and I no longer needed uh, to carry it around in my mind anymore. Um, and I also realized that uh, you know more than half of uh, the Vietnamese population was born after the war was over, and young Vietnamese really loved um, American culture. And I was in Saigon on April 30th, which is um, their liberation day. That was the day that Saigon fell in, um, 1975.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: And we were eating at a restaurant and across the street from the restaurant, um, there were grandstands set up and a stage and lights and so on. And I was curious to see how they were going to, um, celebrate liberation day. And so we waited and they celebrated it with a, a series of Vietnamese rock bands. And, um, <laughs> um I was amazed, and I realized that uh, you know we had finally won their hearts and minds without having to kill them and um it was um a profound um you know recognition that uh, you know the war really was unnecessary, and the kind of um, accomplishment that we had hoped for. Um, had been done, you know, through our values and our culture, uh, without having, you know, to to, to engage true. in killing. That's true. Well, everybody can hold that
3: thought. We're going to take a short break. I'm Gary Ray, along with Linda and our guest Craig and Jim. You're listening to the American Heroes Network, powered by the Voice America on the Variety Channel, and we'll be right back.
0: Search Voice America at your favorite app store. visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
2: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain sparring really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are tuned into American Heroes Network. If you want to find out more about us or to contact us with questions or comments about the show, please send an email to American Heroes Network at gmail.com. That's American Heroes Network at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back. We're here with our guests, Craig and Jim. And Linda, you had a question.
4: I do. Craig, Please talk a bit about your studies and what they are showing about moral injury and its relationship with suicide and suicide prevention, and and bring us up to date on what the studies and outcomes are perhaps illustrating.
6: Right. So so most of our clinical research is actually focused on treating service members who have either made a suicide attempt or who are actively contemplating uh, suicide. And and what we have found um, is that when we look at moral injury, I don't know if you remember, I talked before, there are these sort of different dimensions or types of moral injury, but the one that seems to be most strongly related to suicide is this notion of transgressions by myself. So I have done something that violates my moral code, um, or I failed to do something that I should have done in that violates my moral code, and so you can see, for instance, some individuals who have more of a survivor guilt, so mm-hmm. others in my unit were killed, and I should have been able to save them, I should have been able to prevent that from happening, or oh, a lot of times as well, the why me, why me, and not, you know, other members of my unit who are maybe more deserving of survivor uh, survival or life than I am, and so... The reason why we think this particular type of moral injury is related to suicide risk is because it's very self-related, right? So, mm-hmm. I have done something, I am defective, I don't deserve, you know, a good life, etc. And these thoughts contribute to what we call the suicidal belief system. And so, the treatments that we have been testing over the past few years are sort of based on this notion of we have to help the service member identify these suicidal beliefs, this faulty way of seeing themselves and seeing the world. And we've been working now for several years on testing one particular psychotherapy, we call it cognitive behavioral therapy for suicide risk. And we're pretty far along in this study. We're almost done, and the preliminary results to date uh, show that uh, service members who receive our therapy are 50% less likely to attempt suicide during follow-up as compared to service members who receive kind of the standard existing form of mental health care that is provided to them. And one of the reasons why we see reduced risk for suicidal behavior is because we are seeing reductions in these suicidal beliefs. And what's interesting is that even if service members say, I'm not going to kill myself or I'm not thinking about it, if they still believe that they're defective, they're worthless, that they can never be forgiven for the you know sins they've committed, uh, that they're unable of handling life stress, etc., they're still at risk for suicide, even if they're not thinking about it. And so, our treatments are now geared towards changing and adapting the, this negative self-perception and self-hatred that can sometimes come uh, with moral intrigue. So, we've finished up this sort of first stage, and now we're looking at the further refining treatments that can help intervene even earlier in the crisis. So where we're at right now is before someone has made a suicide attempt, when they first walk into a mental health clinic and say, I'm thinking about killing myself or I'm in crisis, what are the interventions that we can do right then and there in less than 30 minutes that can make a big impact and keep them alive long enough to engage in these other therapies that we've already tested and have refined?
4: So when someone comes to you, and I would, perhaps I'm wrong, so correct me if I am, would military sexual trauma, where someone says, I, I should have been able to fight that off, I should have seen that coming, and that is causing terrible uh, after effects. If someone came to you in crisis with that sort of thing, you said you would take some points and interventions within the first 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. How, how in heaven's name do you begin to open that door to, right. to be able so, to reach that person?
6: Yeah, so, so in the first stage, um, what we're doing is we're testing different forms of what we call crisis <clears throat> response plans or safety plans. These mm-hmm. are checklists that the service member can follow when they are in crisis and thinking about killing themselves. So in essence, it's a list of things to do other than try to kill yourself that keeps them alive. Give them some problem-solving strategies, and then we connect them to more intensive outpatient psychotherapy, and we've, we've had several uh, service members, actually, in our studies who have been victims of sexual assault, and so a lot of times we're targeting, again, that sense of self-blame, the guilt, I should have been able to fight the person off, I should have been able to avoid it, why did I put myself in this situation? to give them a more balanced and realistic perspective of what has happened in their lives. It, the interesting thing that we're finding is that many of the service members who are suicidal actually have a history across their lives of being traumatized, of being criticized or abused in some way. In the more recent abuse, whether it's combat um, or uh, sexual assault that has recently occurred, it's it sort of, it's not a new experience for them, but it they tend to experience a C as yet another example of how defective and terrible I am. And so what we're often faced with is <clears throat> trying to teach someone how to undo a life's worth of assumptions and beliefs about themselves that have led them to this perspective that suicide is the answer. And it's, it's very fascinating to see Service members change over the course of just 12 sessions from I must kill myself, there's no other way, to at the end being able to tell us why they want to live, what their reasons are for staying alive, and in many cases, a lot of them saying, that was just silly of me. Why was I thinking that suicide was the solution? There's so many other ways to handle this, and life is worth living after all. All
3: right. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we only have a couple minutes left, and we'd like to thank Craig and Jim for being with us today. Thank you, gentlemen. And thank, you Cra- thank you, Craig. What would you like to share with our listeners in closing? Yeah.
6: I think the important thing is if you have experienced a, a significant life stressor, help is available, and as Jim mentioned before, uh, your adversity can actually be a source of strength and growth within your life. And be willing to consider that and maybe reach out for help so you become a better, stronger, uh, more capable person in life. It's through strength that we learn, and it's through adversity that we become better individuals.
3: All right. Jim, what would you like to say?
1: Um, I think I'd like to emphasize that, uh, especially to our young veterans, that Um, it's our country that put you in harm's way. And when you are in combat, um, moral injury occurs to many of you through no fault of your own. And it is not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of um, any kind of mistake um, that you've made. And you, even though this feels... um, incredibly overwhelming, you have the strength to be able to confront this, especially if you um, take advantage of the resources that our country now makes available uh, through the VA. Right. And as Craig mentioned, you have an opportunity to turn this terrible experience into an asset to help other people. Right. Linda?
3: Linda?
4: I'm just grateful to have these two gentlemen share their experiences, the studies that are ongoing, and the hope, because adversity does build character as long as someone can work through what it is they're dealing with. So thank you so much for touching on this extremely challenging topic.
3: Yes, definitely. Just remember that we spotlight and promote the best available information of interest to America's veterans and their families. Anytime, anywhere, and on any device. I'm Gary Ray, along with my host, co-host, Linda Crater, signing off. And thanks for listening to the American Heroes Network, powered by Voice America on the Variety Channel. Everyone have a great week.
2: Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of American Heroes Network. Please join Gary Ray and his co-host Linda Crater and other prestigious co-hosts again next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a great week. We are
1: America and we truly do believe You're the backbone of our nation Thanks to you we're living
2: free We're a quilt of many colors and we breathe